Welcome to Bitcoin Sermons, the podcast that preaches how Bitcoin is connected to the coming of Jesus. It's a fascinating topic, and I think it's like the elephant in the room that not many are really talking about, even though it's so obvious. Well, whether you're a Bitcoiner or a Christian or both, this podcast has something for you. Last week, we had a very full episode where we spoke a lot about the law of God and the relation that it has to Bitcoin. And interestingly, uh, this week, an article was published on the topic of the law of God and particularly looking at the heavenly pattern of that law. If you remember that when Moses went into the mountain and received the Ten Commandments, he received it from the Lord. So it was of heavenly origin. And in the course of receiving the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle, he was shown a pattern, a heavenly pattern there in the mountain by the Lord. And it was from that pattern that he was to construct the tabernacle. So the reception of the law and the ordinances involving the tabernacle were all of heavenly origin. What was on earth followed the heavenly pattern. And so I'm particularly excited to kind of go through the article that describes the heavenly pattern and kind of pull tidbits out and draw some lines to what we've been discussing in this podcast in relation to how Bitcoin here on earth fits into this scenario and how the heavenly pattern is reflected in Bitcoin here on earth. And it just so happens that this very day, my daily Bible reading took me to Psalm 49, which is it's probably quoted in the article that I'm going to share with you, which is entitled The Melody of God's Law. But in any case, uh, let me just read that psalm, and I'm going to kind of break it down as we go through it, just to kind of highlight some points. Psalm 49, hear this, all ye people, give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. So, interestingly, the world is categorized in terms of wealth here. Just something to kind of note how much the Bible speaks about wealth and financial matters in all aspects. And in this uh, psalm, obviously, it starts. So, whether it's the rich or the poor, this psalm is addressing everyone in the world. Verse 3, My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. So here, this is the point that's kind of emphasized in the article that we're going to get into a little bit. And it's speaking about opening a dark saying or a riddle, opening riddles on the harp. The harp was an instrument, uh, a stringed instrument that was used by King David. And as you might remember in the story of his 
interactions with King Saul, it was the harp that he would play music on in order to sort of calm the king's anxiety. And just generally speaking here, he's remarking in this psalm that the harp was his instrument. It symbolizes understanding wisdom. And that's pointed out here as it says, my mouth shall speak of wisdom and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. So the harp is connected with the understanding of wisdom and the dark sayings or riddles, riddles, the secrets, the mysteries of wisdom. And there's a lot more about that that uh, you can read in the article, The Melody of God's Law. But uh, let's continue on to verse 5. Wherefore should I fear? in the days of evil, when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about. So, in other words, if you have wisdom, then do you need to fear when the evil days come, when iniquity or sin that's chasing you surrounds you? And and this is this is painting a picture of a time of evil, a time of bad, a bad time. And that's the time that arguably is upon us, especially as we see what's happening in the world in terms of the centralization of power and the centralization of currency, money. And this is something that affects everyone, low and high, rich and poor, and uh, in one way or another. And so here, this verse is very applicable. The bad days are here. And should we be afraid? The question, it's a rhetorical question, and perhaps the answer is yes, you should be afraid if you don't have wisdom and if you don't understand the mysteries that are connected with the harp in the previous verse. So these are important things to investigate and study because we want to understand the deep things of God so that in the bad times, we need not fear. And I think Bitcoin is very connected to that. It's a riddle in a sense. It's a mystery in a sense. And it's something that it's sort of an embodiment of wisdom in a sense. And it's something that if you have it, if you understand it, and if you're in harmony with it, then it can protect you. It can give you reason not to fear in these evil days, in these bad times that we are entering. However, this is not just about wealth and, uh, you know, having financial security in difficult times. There's another aspect to this, and this is where this podcast, Bitcoin Sermons, really preaches to the Bitcoiners more so than the Christians. And we see that in verse 6. It says, They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever. It ceaseth, it's talking about death here. It ceaseth forever. Once you die, that's it. And, and nobody can save somebody from dying, no matter how wealthy they are. 
yes, we may have some kinds of medical interventions that can be done, but ultimately a a person has a lifespan and when the time comes, there's nothing you can do, no matter how wealthy you are, to stop the onset of death. That he should still live, yeah, so so none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him that he should still live, verse 9, forever and not see corruption. So it's talking about eternal life here. And it's talking about that no amount of wealth can secure for a person eternal life or for another person eternal life. For he seeth that the wise men die, likewise the fool, and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. So in other words, the same fate happens to everyone, and that's that ultimately death comes. And the wealth, whether a person is wise or foolish, their wealth is left to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. In other words, people believe that their efforts, their what they build up in their life, their houses, their lands, their estates, their companies, their businesses, they believe that it will continue forever. Kind of like King Nebuchadnezzar with his kingdom that he intended to endure forever. Nevertheless, verse 12, man being in honor abideth not. In other words, honor doesn't last. He is like the beasts that perish, like the animals that die. In other words, they just die and they go away and that's it. This their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. In other words, this is a faulty way of thinking, but yet every future generation thinks the same way and and, and doesn't see it any different. Like sheep, verse 14, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. Now it speaks of something different. It speaks of the upright having an advantage. Before, it was talking about everyone facing death in the same way. Everyone inevitably facing death, and that no riches can save a person from that. But here, now it turns, and it says that the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. So at a certain time, if you wait till morning, whatever morning signifies in this context, at a certain time, the righteous, the upright, will have dominion over, and it says, the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. So the beauty of those who die, obviously. But, verse 15, but God will redeem my soul. So this is for the upright now. Verse 15 applies, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. So this is speaking about the resurrection that God will redeem from death. He will resurrect the upright from the power of the grave. So even though the body may decompose, you know, God has a record of your construction, of, of the blueprint of your body and of your life and character, the archive of your neural network, so to speak. All that is recorded by God, and it's no problem for him to resurrect from the dead. This is what was shown 
by Jesus Christ, by his own resurrection, as well as the resurrection of many others at the time of his death, and also even in times before that, in the experiences of Elijah and Elisha, for example. And so it's not a difficult thing for God to raise people from the dead, but there's a time and way for everything. And in, the, in these verses, it's speaking of the upright, that they shall have dominion, they shall reign, they shall rule over the dead in the morning. Verse 16, now, be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away, his glory shall not descend after him. And this is something that you can think about in the context of Bitcoin and how many sort of worldly people, people who have no regard for God, got instantly wealthy, you know, almost overnight when the Bitcoin price, uh, you know, rose up, you know, so quickly from, from nothing, you know, over a decade ago to, you know, 30,000-ish uh, as it is today. But as it says here, their wealth, when they die, that wealth will go to others. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. In other words, it won't follow him into the grave and, he, and it won't do him any good there. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. So in other words, no matter how wealthy a person is, when they die, they disappear. They go away just like their fathers and they shall never see light. Man that is in honor, verse 20, and understandeth not is like the beasts that perish. In other words, there's no future for them. They just die and decompose and they're gone. There's no resurrection for the animals. And in the same way, there's no future for the wicked, for those that understandeth not. Yes, there is a resurrection of the wicked that the Bible speaks of uh, when they will ultimately receive the final punishment for their wickedness that wasn't rewarded here in this life. But that's not what this psalm is about, obviously. It's speaking about the eternal life that awaits the righteous, which those who have no understanding will not take part of. And so this is the sermon to those who do not regard God, even though they may acquire Bitcoin or become very wealthy or successful or prosperous or honored in this life, in this world, they ultimately will miss out on the resurrection of the just and on the eternal life that God alone is able to give. No amount of wealth, according to these verses, no amount of wealth can purchase eternal life. No amount of wealth can restore a person to existence. And this is perhaps not so obvious to the current generation, even though to some of us it seems obvious, very obvious. But today we see ideas floating around and, and, and being propagated by films and such things where 
The idea exists that a person's mind, their neural network, can be scanned and digitized into a computer system and then sort of brought back to life through a neural network simulation that is adapted to the same neural connections that were scanned from their from the person's actual mind and this is you know this you know in the sort of sci-fi imagination this uh, could then be connected to either a biological body and uh, you know giving a person literally a, a new life or it could be housed in a cybernetic, in a, in a robot, basically, and given life in that way. And so the thought exists out there that we can obtain eternal life just by our own ingenuity as mankind. And this is nothing new. This is something that has existed all through the ages of history that you know, people thought by taking, by eating this particular substance that they could, you know, the fountain of youth of, of ancient times, you know, whatever means that people imagined in various ways, people have always imagined and have been striving to obtain eternal life by their own means. And to the exclusion of God in the picture. And this is the problem because life ultimately comes from God and there is no life apart from him. In him, we move and live and have our being. And no matter how hopeful the future might seem to those who kind of put their trust in man's technology, ultimately that's a path that won't work. It's not wise, okay? Um, and this psalm here is talking about finding wisdom and that ultimately the righteous, the wise, are the only ones who will attain the resurrection. And that's why this article, I think, is so valuable. The melody of God's law, because it really gives a spiritual outlook and a lot of deep insight into the ways of God and in particular by looking at the heavens and seeing the heavenly pattern for the law of God that was revealed on Mount Sinai. And it kind of goes a little deeper into the commandments and what they mean and how to apply them in a spiritual way to the life here and now in the context of today's world. And so I hope uh, we'll get into some of those things. So I just wanted to uh, go over that psalm and kind of highlight the uh, some specific aspects of it there as we did. So, you know, on this topic, I think it's very interesting that, uh, you know, this week I came across a tweet, I think it was, that was basically repeating a quote from Mahler's, uh, Jack Mahler's. And I want to actually play that for you. And so let me just play that for you right now. There are two things that I'm aware of in life that are definitively scarce. Is one, my time on this planet. And the only other thing is that there will never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. 
And so the only thing that I mentally compartmentalize on how to reference how to price this thing is how much I value my life. And it's why I, I take care of my body and it's why I build relationships that I love and it's why I do the things I do. And to try and think about how to then carry that level of energy and finite capability into a monetary instrument I don't know how the world's going to price it and it's going to be complicated and it's going to be volatile and it, sometimes it's going to be war-esque because there are nation states involved. I couldn't be more bullish under that pretense for everything else in your life, guys. You, there will be more supply if there's enough demand. There could be all the demand in the world and nobody can create more Bitcoin in the same way that you can't live forever. And so, yeah, I'm really, really fucking bullish. I don't know how the world's going to price these things. <laughs> All right. So do you see how applicable his words are to the things that we have just read in this psalm? He speaks about the two most precious things that anyone could ever have. One is wealth, but that's not the most precious. The most precious is one's own life itself, that no amount of wealth can actually secure. And so that really puts things into perspective. And, you know, this is just one example where I really feel like the Bitcoiners often preach better than the Christians. And I can really find a friend in people like that, even though there might be sort of, you know, words that a Christian might not take upon their lips. But God sees and hears differently than man does. And it's not my place to judge the externals like that. But in the vein of the psalm that we read, it's our goal should be to find wisdom, not to be caught up on external things. So with that, I want to just encourage everyone who's listening now to really put the valuable things first, and that would be your life, which is scarce, which is finite, and use the time you have remaining in the best way possible. And part of that includes pursuing eternal life, because once this present life is over, you will not be able to make any pursuits towards eternal life. But in the time that you have now, you can seek the wisdom of God that will result in your eternal life and to the degree that you impart that to others, to the eternal life of others as well. And I believe, just as Jack Mahler's indicated, that the only other precious thing that's in any way comparable to one's finite life itself is Bitcoin because of its fixed supply, then I believe pursuing Bitcoin is connected in some way with that wisdom that, according to the Bible, we should pursue, which was given in the context, remember, of high and low, rich and poor, in the context of the contrast between those of great wealth and those lacking wealth. And that is the premise of this whole podcast, is that Bitcoin has something very significant to do with the return of Jesus Christ. 
and ultimately with the resurrection in that context, with eternal life, and with the wisdom of God, which is the only wisdom that's capable of resurrecting the dead. Okay, so that's a big hypothesis, but I think it's one that we've laid out a lot of evidence for in previous episodes and will continue to do so as we go on. Now, just to give you a taste of this article, The Melody of God's Law, I'm going to read a line or two from the introduction here. It says, The law of God is the foundation of his kingdom. And just pause right there. I spoke a lot about that in previous episodes of how money is also the foundation of a kingdom. And so it's natural then to compare the law of God to a monetary system that is in harmony with his kingdom, and that being Bitcoin. And so where it says the law of God is the foundation of his kingdom, a monetary system that is foundational to his kingdom could be compared to the law of God. That would be the law of God. And so the comparison that we made in the previous episode is very uh, logical in this sense. It's virtually stated here, just in different words. Going on, and all who enter it, all who enter the kingdom of God, will have his law in their hearts. Now, in the basic meaning of this, the intended meaning is that, obviously, those who live in heaven, in order to live and thrive in the kingdom of God, they will have to be law-abiding citizens, and they will uh, have to have the law of God written in their hearts so that they will not go against the law. It's kind of like, you know, here on earth, you don't necessarily have to know the law as in like, you know, have in your mind every piece, every statute, every, you know, the law is extensive. It's vast, you know, and nobody can really memorize the whole law. Even the lawyers can't do that. But the point is that a a normal, decent, law-abiding citizen will never go against the law anyway because it's in his heart. In other words, he just does by nature. It's just natural to him to do what is in harmony with the law, assuming it's a good law. Now, (laughs) man's law oftentimes is distorted in comparison to the law of God in ways that make it where decent, ordinary people can be found operating contrary to man's law. And this is something that needs to be corrected. Those types of laws that make it difficult for honest people to make a living and conduct their lives as is appropriate, such laws should be repealed and replaced and whatever. And that's something that needs to be paid attention to. But to kind of get to the point here that You know, in this comparison where Bitcoin forms the foundation of a kingdom, of God's kingdom here, you know, as it is reflected here on earth, all who enter it will have his law in their hearts. That's kind of like saying, you know, all those who invest in Bitcoin ultimately do so because they love the principles that Bitcoin is about. And you might say, well, no, a lot of people just invest in Bitcoin just because, you know, they're trying to make a quick buck. And then, yeah. And what happens is those people end up selling their Bitcoin for fiat currencies or other worthless things. 
And in the end, they find themselves outside. You know, there are many people who once had Bitcoin and have it no longer simply because they didn't value it. They didn't cherish the law of Bitcoin, so to speak. They didn't cherish what makes Bitcoin Bitcoin. And that's how it is with the kingdom of God, that only those who really have in their heart the principles of God, who, who really love who he is and what he's about, those are the only ones who will ultimately be resurrected to thrive in his kingdom. And so there's definitely a parallel there. And it's, I think, very valuable to see what the heavenly pattern has to say, as explained in this article, rather than to simply trust in earthly wealth, whether that's in the form of Bitcoin or any other worldly monetary system. And that was always the point of the earthly reflection of the heavenly. Ever since the time that the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai and the tabernacle was constructed and the ordinances were given to the children of Israel to teach them how to do their sacrifices and all this type of thing. All of that earthly construction that was patterned after the heavenly pattern was intended for the single purpose of turning man's attention from the earthly to the heavenly. And Jesus says in the New Testament that when you see the troubles coming on the earth, then look up, look up to the heavens, because your redemption draws nigh. And so when we see the financial system in the turmoil that it's in now, and we see the role Bitcoin is playing there as an escape for the people who recognize what's going wrong with the existing financial system, then it's time also to look up and to see what God really is saying in the original heavenly pattern of his law and to understand how the earthly reflections of that, whether in the literal Ten Commandments that were handed down to us from Mount Sinai, or in the form of the law of Bitcoin in the financial sense, it's important to go back to the original for the clearest and deepest understanding of the earthly reflection of that. And so for that, I can only recommend that you check out this article, The Melody of God's Law. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. I'm certainly not going to read it all for you here. But I do want to kind of hit some highlights as it relates to the topic and theme of this podcast. And so let's do that. So the article starts out with kind of the big picture. It says the great controversy between Christ and Satan is entering its climax. So that's referring to what happened in heaven before the earth was created, according to the biblical understanding. And Job kind of gives some insight into sort of the heavenly councils and what that uh, looked like even before the earth was created. And basically the point is that 
Satan, it says, the fallen angel contended for freedom from God's law to transcend what he counted as its unjust, arbitrary restrictions. Now, I want to kind of show you what this means in the context of the financial system. So Bitcoin is a system that has an arbitrary restriction. Okay, what is that arbitrary restriction? It's 21 million Bitcoins. It, that's a that's an arbitrary number, arguably. You can uh, listen to my other episode about the 21 million on the Day of Judgment to really understand more about what that number signifies. But it's basically an arbitrary number. Nobody really knows exactly why that number was chosen by Satoshi Nakamoto or, you know, whoever. But it just seems like an arbitrary restriction. And it's certainly a restriction because it means you cannot produce or print or mine more Bitcoin than that number. It's a restriction. It's a limit. And so I hear uh, my neighbor is turning up the music. So I apologize for that. I'm sure that's going to come through. But anyway, we'll see how this goes. Um, The... Okay, so yeah, it's an arbitrary restriction, and the fallen angel contended that God's law, so in other words, those who contend that Bitcoin's code, Bitcoin's law, is arbitrary and restrictive, so in other words, those who promote any kind of coin or system that bypasses a hard limit on the amount of currency those who think that it's unfair to kind of have that limit, those are the ones that are following the fallen angel, so to speak, in his logic against the law of God. And in order to face this accusation of the fallen angel, of Lucifer, of Satan, God ultimately set up a judicial system. He set up a court specifically to address this concern, which was a world, uh, a universal concern, once the accusation was put forward, then it became a matter of concern for the entire universe, the entire realm of God's kingdom. And it's, um, I'm reading now, humanity would serve as the jury to decide whose cause is just. So in other words, there was God who had an established kingdom, a kingdom of justice and righteousness, but a kingdom with limits that were defined by his law, which was a reflection of his character, of who he was. It was his kingdom, and it followed his thinking, his way, his character. And Satan came along, then known by, at that time, known as Lucifer, and he proposed that those limits that God imposed seemingly arbitrarily on his kingdom were unjust and unfair, and that it would be nicer if we had freedom from those laws, if we didn't have to obey and keep the laws of God. So this accusation then, having been put onto the world stage, the universal stage rather, became a question and a concern for the entire universe. And as a result, God had to 
do something to address this in a way that would be satisfying to the entire universe and in a way that would not be arbitrary. In other words, I mean, he could have just said, no, Satan, you've gone astray, you're wrong, zap, you're gone. And, uh, you know, the whole rest of the universe would perhaps obey in fear. But in the back of their mind, they would say, whoa, uh, you know, ouch, maybe uh, maybe Lucifer was really right. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a good outcome, ultimately, because then God would lose the free will service of the citizens of his kingdom. And instead, he would have a new generation of beings who would be obeying him out of fear, who would be following the law out of fear of contradicting it, because then they would suffer the same fate as Satan. So it was really a situation in which God had to be wise about how to address this and how to bring understanding to the universe as to the nature of Satan's accusation and to help all the universe come to grips with ultimately with the difference between good and evil. And to do this, God needed a jury, a body of people who could come to a consensus on the truth of the matter to decide the case. But these would have to be people who were, in a certain sense, neutral. Okay, They had to have knowledge of both sides of the case, but they had to be neutral in the sense that they were not required to be predisposed to loyalty to either one side or the other. And this is really an interesting challenge because how do you do that in a universe where everyone was originally in harmony with God and therefore either was loyal to him or had defected and become loyal to Satan. Where does this jury come from? And so the way that God devised to bring about this jury was to create the world and to create humanity and to allow humanity to grow not only as individuals but also as a people to the point where humanity can serve as kind of the neutral party that did not have a predisposition to one side or the other. And how that happened is really the wisdom of God. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God placed a tree, well, two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And through the whole experience of Adam and Eve and the fall, man went from having only a knowledge of good to having a knowledge of good and evil. And in that way, man acquired, mankind acquired firsthand experience with the ways of Satan. And the story of mankind throughout history, and especially the story of God's people as they have been striving to come out from under the curse of sin and to live a holy life, a good, a just, and a noble life 
and to overcome the power of Satan through the power of God. That whole experience of journeying from the fallen condition to the unfallen condition is something that is a matter of growth over the course of human existence and ultimately comes to its climax here in the present day. And that is what the book of Revelation speaks so much about. And in particular, it speaks about 144,000 virgins. You know, a virgin is a, a young woman who has never been married or had sexual relations with a man. And in symbolic terms, that symbolizes a church that has not um, defiled itself or, or uh, compromised with state power or with false teachings or things like that. And so a church that has prostituted itself for the sake of monetary gain, for the sake of wealth, for the sake of anything else, power, whatever, such a church is no longer a virgin. And so when the Bible speaks of 144,000 virgins, it doesn't mean women and it doesn't mean men who have never had sexual relations. It just means in a symbolic sense, because Revelation is a book of symbolism, it means in the symbolic sense, a church that is somehow symbolized by this number, 144,000, and by the characteristic of being pure. And for that to be the case, that is extremely special because all throughout history, mankind has been under the curse of sin and under the burden of sin and its punishment. And the 144,000 spoken of in the book of Revelation are described as never tasting death, for example, and basically as having overcome the power of the beast system and ultimately the power of Satan. And so essentially what we have here is a situation where a subset, 144,000, a subset of humanity has succeeded in availing themselves of the power of Jesus Christ to gain the victory over sin and to regain sort of the, the free will, the freedom to choose and to obey the law of God as Adam and Eve originally had in the Garden of Eden. Originally, they were free. They, they had the freedom to choose whether to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or not. And as long as they chose not to, they maintained that free choice. And so while it seemed like a restriction that they could only eat of certain trees, uh, you know, they could eat of all the trees except that tree, it seemed like a restriction, but in actuality, that was their freedom. It was their freedom to choose that. And they lived in that freedom as long as until they sinned. And once they sinned, that freedom was taken away and they became bound by the law of sin. And from henceforth, uh, mankind has been under this curse, so to speak, where we all have this natural tendency to 
do the wrong things and to, you know, make the wrong choices and to, you know, in, in the extreme examples of addiction, you know, people do the wrong things even though they don't want to. That's not having freedom. That's being bound, having to do things that they don't want to do. You know, Paul talks about that. And so Christ overcame the enemy. He overcame sin and he showed the way to overcome sin. But Christ was sort of unique in the sense that he was the son of God. And he had in himself, by his very own nature and character, the desire and the simply the the nature to follow God without ever compromising with sin. And so he couldn't, in a sense, serve as the jury or, you know, the judge in this great uh, heavenly controversy between, uh, you know, about the accusations that Satan brought regarding the kingdom of God, because he would be partial. I mean, he's, he's obviously, it's his nature to obey the law of God because it, it's his law too. It's he, he's the son of God. It's, it's his nature that's in question. And so he couldn't really serve as the jury to decide, but he could lead the way. And that's what he did by coming as our example and showing us what a life of self-sacrifice is like. And how to truly live for the benefit of others in a sacrificial way. And I think it's no accident that the example of Satoshi Nakamoto sort of gives a fresh illustration of what Christ did in sacrificing himself for the benefit of humanity. Because Satoshi never... He basically disappeared, okay, and he never came back to claim his success with creating Bitcoin. He never came back to claim his wealth. He never came back to take credit for the innovation that he brought to the world. You know, he wasn't in it for himself. He simply gave a gift, a huge gift to humanity by creating Bitcoin and uh, setting it into motion. And so that is very much an example of the kind of self-sacrificial, that benevolent, that altruistic nature of God and of Jesus Christ in giving the ultimate gift to the world for the salvation, for the benefit of mankind. And I believe that's not by accident that things turned out that way, that in the very foundation of how Bitcoin was created, you can see, you can trace the outline of the character of God. And so that's one more way in which you can see Bitcoin as the financial reflection or the financial aspect of the kingdom of God here on earth. But to kind of come back to this point about the 144,000 being the jury, God needed a jury. And so he needed people that would have a knowledge of both sides of the case. So that had to be someone who understood God, but who also understood Satan and sort of 
what his kingdom entails and what its results would be ultimately. And so through the course of human history, um, according to the Bible, that would be 6,000 years of human history. Um, And that's significant as well because that's in contrast or in comparison to the six days of creation. In the Bible, it speaks of a day being like a thousand years. And this, in the, during the six days of creation, it was God who worked in creating the world. And then on the seventh day, he rested and he spent time communing with Adam and Eve who had just newly been created. And so in comparison to that, we are now at a point where after 6,000 years, mankind has been laboring under, has been working, has been doing their work under the curse of sin. So as basically servants of Satan in a certain sense, but, but, but the people of God have been striving for freedom while the others have been basically um, striving to make the kingdom of Satan work here on earth. And so we have this sort of competition between two systems, between a system of righteousness and a system of worldliness, or you could just, yeah, I mean, a system of evil, simply put. And where we are at right now, at this point in history, is sort of the culmination of those 6,000 years. And that can be seen especially in the financial system, which is, again, the foundations of society, the foundations of kingdoms, of how we interact as people, how we convey value amongst ourselves. And all this foundational essence of society is bound up in the monetary system. And we have, at this point in time, two competing monetary systems. The system of Bitcoin, which is based on a limit, like the law of God, based on limits, but yet it's a free system. It's true freedom. And then on the other hand, we have a system, the systems of the the financial systems of the world that are based on having no limit, which is to say, you know, money can be printed in a limitless fashion. And that is sort of the foundation of all the kingdoms of the world as they stand today. And those two systems are facing off in the final battle. So how does the 144,000 play into this? Well, for one thing, the 144,000 are going to be on the side of Bitcoin. That's a given because that's the side of God. But the 144,000 are to serve as the jury to ultimately decide which system is the best, which system deserves to reign through the entire universe. Is the system of God with its limits? Is obedience to the law of God the way that the universe should operate? as it did for eternity past? Or is this new proposed system of Satan without limits, with total freedom, so-called freedom, is that the way forward that the universe should adopt? And the 144,000 
are in the unique position to evaluate this case and to make the determination because they have the collective experience of humanity going from the beginnings of Adam and Eve being sort of naively subject to the law of God, like the old universe under God's law, then being introduced to the law of Satan, to freedom from God's law, freedom to do whatever you want. Oh, I can eat any tree. I don't have to obey the law of God. And to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and gain so-called knowledge and wisdom from that and ultimately sort of, you know, define your own future apart from God. And that's kind of the direction that the whole world has taken since then. And that culminates, I, I would say, in this sort of technological idea that we can ultimately in the future be able to even resurrect the dead and reproduce past lives and even give them a body and a new life, so to speak. And interestingly, just kind of as a side note on that topic, um, there's a current effort to sort of resurrect chatbots, resurrect people as chatbots by taking their writings and then kind of feeding that into the large language models uh, so that a neural network that's sort of trained on everything that person ever produced in their life that content can then feed into this neural network and then sort of regurgitate what that person would say today if you were to interact with them today. And so, you know, it, it, it's really interesting from a technological perspective, but it's it's also um, a little bit disturbing in the sense that, you know, I mean, you could perhaps pull up a chat bot that's you know, reconstructed from your grandpa or your, you know, anybody who's died and, you know, have a conversation with that person and, you know, kind of like ask for some advice, you know, and it might be kind of interesting to see what the results of that are and, you know, that sort of thing. But this goes in the direction of forbidden knowledge. This goes in the direction of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, of of trying with human efforts to sort of without God accomplish the things that only God can do. Only God can truly resurrect a person that is really that same person, you know, that, that really has that person's same character in all of its nuances and, and in all of its genuineness. And so anything else, any other form of bringing back the dead, so to speak, and talking with the dead is something that the Bible explicitly condemns. In, in earlier forms, it was uh, done through necromancy and, you know, all these sorts of pagan practices involving evil spirits and whatever, at least as you know, it is described. And, but today we can do those things through technology, but it's kind of the same thing. It's using sort of human-made enchantments, of, you know, whether that be the enchantments of teaching an AI bot, you know, training an AI bot on uh, data sets and whatever, you know, it's a human activity. It's a human invention that's 
uh, bringing about this uh, reconstruction of the one from the dead, you know. And so it's not actually accurate. And through those means, Satan ultimately gains the power to deceive, just like he gained the power over Saul in that incident when Saul brought back supposedly Daniel, uh, uh, Samuel from the grave and uh, sought counsel from him. And so, you know, you might think it's interesting or cool or harmless or whatever you might think of, you know, sort of bringing back an ancient person, uh, you know, from the dead in the form of a chatbot or maybe even in an imaginable future, maybe even giving that person back a body and sort of bringing them back to life in entirety, you know, that, that might be interesting and intriguing, but it's contrary. It's completely contrary to what the Bible teaches and to the ways of God. And ultimately, that is the manifestation of Satan's promise from the Garden of Eden that ye shall be like gods, having the power even to resurrect the dead. I mean, imagine that. And so it's a promise that Satan made and perhaps he even believes in. But that doesn't mean that that's the right way to go and that that would be a nice kingdom to live under. You know, even if his kingdom could sort of operate on its own diabolical principles for eternity, the question would still remain, is that a kingdom that people would want to live under? And I think that is a very important key to the great controversy and to the role of the 144,000, they are a jury which has experienced both sides. They sort of came from the naive position in the beginning, from the, from the Garden of Eden, grew through the collective human experience, through the experience of sin, ultimately to the present day where the world is almost completely dominated by the sort of fiat mindset of having no restrictions. And so the 144,000 have seen both sides and they're at this juncture in history where they are poised. They have come through the 6,000 years, come through the work week of laboring and sort of slaving away under sin and have finally come out of that and, and reached the standard of righteousness through the power of God, through the development of their character to recognize what sin is and to turn away from it and to cling to the ways of God. And in that capacity, they are able, they, they've seen all sides. They've gone from innocent righteousness, so to speak, to condemnation under sin, to back to righteousness. They've kind of made that journey from earth to heaven, so to speak, in their experience. And this is described as their, their song, you know, the song of the 144,000 in the book of Revelation, which is the song of Moses and the Lamb. It's the song of self-sacrifice. It's the song of 
going from the slavery, the bondage of Egypt into freedom under the law of God. So this experience of the 144,000 uniquely fits them to be the jury for the great case of the universe that is to be decided between Christ and Satan. And what I find so amazing is the fact that Bitcoin comes on the scene right now as a system of justice, a system of judgment, if you will, and that the 144,000 are connected to this system. And I suppose you can read about that in some articles. In particular, you might want to look at the article entitled Reward Her Double. And that's actually an article that I wrote and it gives some context, but I think actually the article that was published immediately after that, the title of it escapes me at the moment, but um, those two articles taken together talk about Bitcoin and about the relationship of the 144,000 to Bitcoin. And I would just recommend that for a deeper understanding of that topic. But um, for the purpose of today's conversation, what I would like to say is that Bitcoin is kind of a system for judgment. And, you know, we've kind of talked about that in, in other episodes as well. Again, I refer to the 21 million on Judgment Day. And it's widely recognized as sort of a voting system as well, uh, both within the Bitcoin ecosystem that, uh, you know, node runners are literally the voters. They vote on the rules of the kingdom, so to speak. And it could ultimately come down to the point in the future that a fork is proposed that a fork to Bitcoin that would undo the hard limit of 21 million bitcoins. Okay, I mean, that's a theoretical possibility, right? And ultimately, it would be the node runners who would be voting on, you know, which system rules in the end. And so it, Bitcoin is a system of voting. It's, it's a jury, so to speak. And the way a jury is supposed to work is that they should come to a consensus. They should come to a unanimous decision. And that's how, you know, the Bitcoin network works. It, it's, it's a system of consensus. And so that's kind of one aspect that it shows sort of how the judgment, how this concept of the jury in deciding the case of the universe in terms of God's law is reflected here on earth in the system of Bitcoin. So again, we see that heavenly pattern being reflected in the earthly counterpart. But there are other ways of voting as well. And one of the most obvious ways is simply where do you hold your wealth? Where do you put your life energy? Do you store it in Bitcoin or do you store it in other systems of wealth storage, like, for example, in your bank account, in your fiat bank account, or in uh, stocks, or in uh, real estate investments, or in whatever. You can store your labors, your hard work, in those forms, or you can store them in Bitcoin, and the choice is yours. That's one way of voting. The more you use and trust Bitcoin to store your life efforts, then the more you are voting for Bitcoin and for the kingdom of God in that sense. 
Whereas, you know, the more you continue to rely upon and use the fiat systems and sort of ascribe value to those systems and, you know, all in all of the various forms, then you are voting, in essence, for the sort of worldly system, the satanic system, if I may put it that way, the system of evil that ultimately robs from its people. I don't think it's a stretch to call that satanic. When we talk about inflation and money printing and, you know, all these invisible taxes that are not decided by the people, you know, that and, and those are taken away literally by force, you know, that is violence and that is a satanic system. I, I think nobody should have any qualms about saying that and naming it what it is doesn't mean everybody involved in the fiat system is evil in and of themselves, you know, but the system as a whole is satanic. It's evil. It's bad. Okay. And that's where the role of education and sort of conversion needs to take place because we need people to understand those things and to understand really the importance of sound money and, and more so the importance of their money being sound so that, you know, they can ultimately move to a sound money standard, the sound money standard, which is Bitcoin. But the point to really be driven home here is that we do have this jury situation, this judgment situation taking place here and now. And Bitcoin is definitely a part of that. Whether it's the choice between fiat and Bitcoin, or whether it ultimately becomes a choice within the Bitcoin realm that has to be ultimately sorted out within the framework of the consensus system. One way or another, it's clear that in the financial system, a judgment is taking place. And I think we've given a lot of evidence as to how that reflects the, the judgment in heaven and particularly of the heavenly law of the heavenly original of the law of God that was given on Sinai and that we see reflected in Bitcoin today. So these are really deep, deep topics. And um, I want to just kind of go a little further in this article and see what else comes out there. Now, the article also goes on and talks, it actually, it expounds a lot on the law of God and the each of the Ten Commandments, similarly to how we did in the previous episode, at least with the first four, and except this goes into a, a very spiritual perspective and gives a lot of insights that are relevant to a person's life here and now. And so I can only recommend that you read the article for its insights. But it particularly emphasized the importance of the Sabbath commandment and sort of all the things or many of the things that it means. And it's not just or it's not primarily about a specific day, the you know, the seventh day, um, even though that's in a, in a way that's intrinsic to the Sabbath commandment. But it's about a broader principle that manifests in different ways in the world today. And so today, it's not about being judged 
according to which day of the week you go to church. Okay, that's just not even a topic today in today's world. Um, it's about other issues that are sort of symbolized and indicated in the fourth commandment that a person really needs to pay attention to. And those are the issues that are really topics of concern in the world today that need to be understood by Christians and by everyone. And, uh, you know, because those are the matters on which the world is being judged. And one of the topics that is particularly brought out is the relationship of the commandments and particularly the fourth commandment to the character of God. And one of the things about the fourth commandment is that it's the only commandment that specifically deals with time and measurements of time and so forth. And this is connected to God's characteristic of time. You know, we often say God is love. And interestingly, people say Bitcoin is love also. And, you know, again, you see that reflection that the character of God is reflected in the monetary system on earth that corresponds to his kingdom. And so uh, in, in, in a similar way, in recent years, it has been discovered and understood that one of God's character attributes is time. So God is not only love, but he's also time. And that manifests in a couple of ways that can be readily seen. First of all, that God gives grace in the form of time. So the fact that uh, you know, you can see that from the beginning of history to this day. The fact that Adam and Eve did not die that very day that they sinned is evidence that God is time and that time is love, that time is mercy. It's his grace. And so God gave, you know, as we mentioned earlier, that with God, a day is like a thousand years. And it was so that man's lifespan was limited to a thousand years because of sin. And nobody has lived longer than that. The longest living person recorded is Methuselah, who lived 969 years, you know, near a thousand, but not quite. And so he died that very day, so to speak, or let's just say mankind uh, was limited in his lifespan to a day being a thousand years, uh, even from the very beginning. And now, of course, our lifespans are much shorter because the factors of you know nature have been working against us since then, especially since the flood. But the point is that time is an expression of the character of God. And part of that means that there is a limit because think of it a clock would be meaningless or near meaningless if there were no restrictions on time you need a clock so that you can be on time right you need a clock so that you don't miss uh, things that are happening or so that you can measure the time that passes and so one of the ways that this sort of takes shape is, you know, as 
shown in the Sabbath commandment is that there is a time to work and a time to rest. And in the grander scheme of things over the course of millennia, we see that we are in a time that we have passed the time to work. The six days are over and the seventh day has begun. And the sixth millennia are over and the seventh millennia has begun. And you can study all about that. It's a fascinating topic and it's one that we will get into, I believe, later in this podcast series. But to speak about the timing of the millennium, but the, there are many articles written about that, uh, which you can find published in the same books where the article is going to be published that we are examining today, The Melody of God's Law. And so on the same website and on the, in the same books, you can find the articles that deal with the timing of the millennium. And that's a very interesting subject. And like I said, one that we will touch on in future episodes, if the Lord is willing. But I think what I do want to point out right now is just the fact that in the context of the Sabbath commandment, we're dealing with a transition from a time of labor, a time of work, a time of sort of slaving under the pressures and uh, bondage of the the sinful nature and of and, and of all the obstacles and hindrances that life sort of throws our way that is the system that 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 characterizes the fiat system that has taxes here and fees there and costs there and devaluation there and you know there, there's so much in the in the way of obstacles that uh, you know to work and to labor under that system as we have been for the past 6,000 years in a system that has been growing worse and worse um, that is really sort of sucking away our life so to speak and that is the labor that should come to an end now that the 6,000 years, that the work week, the great work week of time has come to an end. And in its place, what is dawning is the Sabbath. And the Sabbath millennium, this coming millennium, is a time not for work anymore, but it's a time for communion with God. And I find it quite fascinating just amazing and a blessing and just thrilling that God has shown this so clearly and so powerfully through the advent of Bitcoin. And this manifests itself in the way that you can see by how the OG Bitcoiners approach life, okay? Not all of them have necessarily a good character, okay? But many of them exemplify exactly the things that they should exemplify. And for example, one of the things that Bitcoin has done for the OG Bitcoiners in particular, for those who have been in it from the beginning or very early on, they have grown wealthy through Bitcoin's rise in value. And through that wealth, they have been enabled to contribute to society in a free will manner. 
And that's something that many of us, like myself, don't have the luxury of. You know, we have to still labor in order to make a living. But to the degree that we harmonize with Bitcoin and we take advantage of the good properties of Bitcoin to uh, be able to store our wealth for the future and be able to really take control and be sovereign over what we do with our time, that still kind of gives us a foot in the door, so to speak, to reaching that ultimate goal of being able to simply contribute the best that we have to offer in this life without sort of compulsion or without being under the yoke of, you know, having, of, of being obliged to do a certain type of work or a, or a, or, you know, to, to, to just labor under the, the forces of monetary pressure in order to survive in this world. And so in a very real sense, Bitcoin is enabling. We, we've seen through the rise of Bitcoin and, and through the experience of the OG Bitcoiners, how they've kind of returned to that Edenic state where work was pleasurable and where it wasn't a burden and it was done in a free will manner out of just the goodness of Adam and Eve's heart and out of appreciation for what God had blessed them with and out of just, uh, you know, a heart overflowing with the desire to do good and to improve, beautify the garden and to take care of it and and who knows what all uh, they actually did there. But this sort of ideal life of sort of having the freedom to work within the boundaries of God's law, but being fully satisfied and finding complete joy and satisfaction in that work. And ultimately, in being able to rest with God on the Sabbath day and commune with him and to sort of talk over the week and be able to just praise him for the things that he has made, for the for the various animals that Adam was was uh, given the job of naming, for example, and for perhaps speaking of all the wonderful creations and how the different aspects of creation work together. And, you know, this is, <laughs> it's just amazing that to me, Bitcoin is so, um, is so vast in its, in, uh, in its intricacy and in its potential and in its, workings that it's something you can really talk about and and, and examine and study and really uh, find the wisdom of God in it in that way. And so, and I, I think that doing that is just a praise to God because it's obvious that it wasn't, that all that Bitcoin does and accomplishes was not, could not have all been foreseen and understood by a single person, so to speak, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto or uh, or a group of people, if it were so. And so all that kind of shows that God was behind it. Just like as you study the word of God, you can't help but recognize that there's so much wisdom there that could not have been the intention and the understanding of the original authors, at least not in its 
completeness. And so the role that Bitcoin plays in sort of illustrating the return to Eden here as the seventh millennium has begun is just, I find this fascinating. And there's really a lot more depth there that we could go into and that I trust we will someday. But I just wanted to point out because it was emphasized how important the Sabbath is in this present article. And I wanted to point out the significance of that connection there. And that at this point in time, between or as we're transitioning into the seventh millennium, that that is especially significant in that context right now. And then I also just wanted to emphasize that connection with time as well that the Sabbath commandment is the only commandment that involves time, and Bitcoin is also the only money that involves time, okay, in a concrete way, all right? There's the time chain, you know, which in a certain sense is the more accurate name for the blockchain. And I know some people don't like that name, time chain, but uh, it has a certain role. It has a certain reason why it exists and a certain purpose. And the fact that Bitcoin is so connected to time and this concept of tick-tock next block, you know, that every 10 minutes on average a block is produced, mind this is very significant and the numbers involved are also very significant and it's the only viable monetary system that really has that characteristic no fiat system has anything to do with time in that sense and one thing about the time chain or blockchain is the fact that it climbs upward okay in its most basic format you know when you're dealing with the code, you deal with what is called the block height. And the Genesis block has a height of zero. And then the blocks built upon the Genesis block are numbered increasingly. And we're up to some 800 plus thousand at this point. And so the block height is always ascending. And that's also another deep topic that I would like to get to in the future. But I think for now, just I wanted to mention that to say that we need to be looking up, looking upward, onward and upward as the block height increases, that it's going in the direction of heaven. It's going up to heaven, the block height, and that should point us to the heavens just as the heavens are described in the article that I um, have been uh, sharing bits and pieces of with you today called The Melody of God's Law, where it takes a look at the heavens directly to see what God has to say about his own law there. And so if you're a Bitcoiner, don't let yourself be sort of drawn away from God and to the sort of get-rich-quick mentality and the sort of, you know, make money and cash it in for things that will pass away. But instead, recognize, as we shared earlier from Jack Mahler's, you know, recognize how finite your life really is and the value of eternal life that only God can provide and turn your eyes upward 
follow the hint of the blockchain as it increases upwards to look up to the heavens and learn what God is teaching from there. And so that not only shows again the parallel with the character of God, which is also time, but it shows again one more piece of evidence to make the case that Bitcoin is the monetary system of the kingdom of God. And that here on earth, we have the privilege of using, of, of opting into that system here and now. And ultimately, in that way, we participate in the judgment and in the ultimate vindication of God's character against the satanic system and the character of Satan that has been the controversy since before the world was created. So deep, deep topics here uh, that this article goes into and that we are exploring in the context of Bitcoin here in this podcast. And so I really encourage you to go ahead and uh, share this podcast and let people begin to start to understand these things. And if you'd like to support, which would also go towards sharing this podcast through value for value promotions and things like that, please do support the podcast. And... You can also find me on Noster. Just search for Bitcoin Sermons and you'll find me there. Or you can visit me at bitcoinsermons.substack.com and there you can subscribe for an email newsletter or basically just notifications for each new episode. And in any of those ways, you can reach out to me. So with that, I think we will call this a full episode again. So look up and learn to sing the song of the 144,000 as a juror who will be able to make a good decision for the ultimate destiny of the universe, to be able to understand the riddles of God that are unraveled on the harp, on the stringed instruments, and ultimately be a good juror who will help the world come to a consensus on what the best course is for the ultimate destiny of the universe.